O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 105, which is the first 22 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Friday, May the 6th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the prophecy of Daniel today in the sixth chapter, the first 15 verses in the gospel according to Luke, the fifth chapter, verses 12 to 26, and in the second epistle of John, verses 1 through 13. So remember what had happened at the end of yesterday's lesson was is that Belshazzar, the second in command uh, below his father in Babylon, was murdered. And so we pick up moving from there to a little confusing. It says it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. So what? Wait, I thought the king was Nabodinus. No, they've been conquered. (laughs) And so now the Persian king, Darius, is in control. So we have a new king. But unlike that idiot Belshazzar, this king, Darius, the Persian king, knows about Daniel. He didn't not know as the the king arose in, or the pharaoh arose in Egypt, who didn't know Joseph after many, many, many years. What it means to know is to remember, to have heard, to have respected So here, he's going to set up 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them, there were going to be three high officials, of whom Daniel was one. So Darius was beneficent, I guess, it would be the way to say it, to a conquered people. And in fact, in this case, he's going to appoint a twice-conquered person, (laughs) Daniel, who was from Judah, who was taken into exile by the Babylonians. Now, and he was raised up in that Babylonian culture, uh, because of the wisdom and understanding and knowledge the Lord gave him. And now there's a new king and a new kingdom. And yet the, Darius's way was to respect the people who had been there before, and he encouraged them to have their own cultures, typically. And that's the reason he's the one who sends the exiles back, is because he, he encourages them to have their own culture, because the, his beneficence was intended to show that... Um, that he was a good ruler, and they could they could live under his rule without chafing. And so he sets these officials up, and Daniel is one of the three over the entire kingdom to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. So in other words, he's, he's there to protect the king's investments, to, to protect what he has, has gathered together to make sure that he suffers no loss at all. So he, he is one of the people who is going to be in charge of hearing from these regional rulers, and he's going to be be overseeing their work. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps. So it, he was one of three, but, but he was literally one, number one of three. He rose above all of them because an excellent spirit was in him. Where did the excellent spirit come from? It's not natural, that's no, there's no implication that it's a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. It's God's Spirit. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
So there, there might still be three high officials, but Daniel's going to be above them. You guess exactly how that going to go down with them, right? So then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they couldn't find a ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So they couldn't find any problem with his work. They couldn't see that, that he was trying to organize some sort of a dissent against the king, that, that actually he was looking out for the king's interest in the same way that Joseph looked out for the king's interest way back in, um, in Genesis. And then these men said, we shall find no ground of complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So let's see what we can do. And this is the same thing that Haman does in the book of Esther. And it's the same basic problem in the book of Esther because it's the same bunch of people. So then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O Darius, King Darius, live forever. And remember, the reason you want that is because what you're acknowledging is that you, would, you, there's, you couldn't imagine anything greater than to have this king rule over you. So you say that in order to flatter the king. And then all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So you're not going, you're going to rule out Daniel by doing this, because he is not going to bow to you as a god, even for 30 days. I mean, you, you could have said, well, what, three, 30 days to slow the spread? <laughs> Everybody should wear a mask, right? So here, though, what, what they're saying is, is that, hey, you know, just set it up for 30 days. They knew that Daniel was a faithful man and a faithful man to his god. And so they knew that Daniel would not look at that and, and say, well, you know, I'll just not pray for 30 days to my god. They knew better than that. So... <clears throat> Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So the king himself will sign the law, but the way that it worked is, is that once it's in law, nobody can reverse it. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Esther. There was a genocide proclaimed against the Jews, that everybody had the right to kill Jews because, well, they don't submit to the laws of the land. They have their own God, and to the extent his laws are different from yours, they're going to follow him. And so the king signed a thing, said anybody who doesn't do this, they're going to be killed. And so it's against the Jews. And then he found out that Esther was a Jew, and so he had to scramble and sign an, uh, another law that says they can protect themselves. Well, so now we have mutually assured destruction, so no genocide happened. And that's what's celebrated in the Feast of Purim, which was about six weeks ago now. So they, they know how they're going to have to do this, and they go into that place. So Darius signed the document and the injunction. So he can't revoke it. There's a law now, and that law has got to be obeyed. The king's hands are tied. There's nothing he can do to change this. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed— so we're told that Daniel's fully aware of this. This is not, uh, oh, hey, this is an inadvertent thing that I did. No, when he knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chambers open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So he continued to do exactly what he did, even though he knew what the penalty would be. These men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and pleas before his God. They knew. 
They knew exactly what time Daniel would be there and what he would be doing at those times. And so they came. Daniel didn't care. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Now, that would have been certainly the decree would have been flattering, and, and he didn't undertake it on his own. These other men encouraged him to do this. And so it sounds like, you know, a good yeah, that's, that sounds good to me that everybody would worship me and not make any petitions outside of me. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, he knew exactly who he was, pay no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, which is very different from Nebuchadnezzar's reaction when he found out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not compliant with his commandment to worship that image. He was furious with them, so furious he heated the furnace seven times hotter. Here, this king, this Persian king, is distressed, and his goal is to find a way around the law, and he labored until the sun went down. All day, he wanted to rescue Daniel from the law that he had signed. He thought that highly of Daniel. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it's a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction and ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. That, that Basically, what they're saying is, we got you to tie your own hands by doing this. So stop. Stop trying to get around it. The law is the law. Period. End of sentence. Even the king can't change it. Now, it's true in God's world, too, right? Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, because not a jot or a tittle would remain that he didn't do. But it's the penalty phase that Jesus averts. The law of God is the law of God because he, is, he himself is unchangeable. And there's a wisdom that God has in giving the law that is not dependent on man's ability or desire to keep the law. Hadn't got anything to do with it. But it's God's desire not to have us go through the penalty phase, not to be judged. And therefore, he sent his son to take the penalty of the law upon himself. Even the only one who was righteous took the penalty for all the transgressions of all mankind on himself. And we access what he gained for us by faith. But it's the same thing. But what you have is a God who's eternal versus a king who's not, and a God who is infinitely wise versus a king whose wisdom is limited. So in Luke, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. There's a profession of faith. There's a profession that he's Lord, Adonai. And if it's his will, then he can make him clean. It's the same sort of trust that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, right? It's it said They said, our God can deliver us, but if not, he's still God. And we're not going to obey you, king. So here, it's the same thing. But this guy, he, he's not allowed to come close. He's not allowed to come anywhere near. He's, he's supposed to stand and, and tell people that he has leprosy and tell them not to come near. But then what does Jesus do? He stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. It's a powerful, powerful thing. Did Jesus need to do that? No. He didn't need to touch him at all, right? All he had to do was say it. 
And we're going to see that in just a second in the, in the back part of this gospel lesson today. He didn't have to touch him, but he did because that was important. And it's the same thing we're going to see in that other part of this gospel lesson today, is Jesus does important things, not just the one thing. Jesus heals everything. Touch would have been something this guy wouldn't have experienced since he had leprosy, since it was diagnosed. He had to stay away from other people. So the fact that Jesus touches him is a powerful, powerful thing in and of itself. That Jesus is not afraid of contracting leprosy, which is what should happen, but instead, this man's made clean by Jesus' touch and by his words. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one. Again, that's that messianic secret. He, he told no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded as a proof for them. So he, he wasn't just to show himself to the priest. He was to also then do the sacrifice, the offering for his cleansing as Moses commanded. And that offering is a sin offering. I can't get into all that right now with the with why it would involve a sin offering, but the belief is among the rabbis that, that leprosy was caused by a sin, and that sin was essentially gossiping and being destructive of community. And so he had to go make this sin offering. Well, that's an odd thing. Jesus tells somebody to go make a sin offering. It's because he had yet to make the ultimate offering for sin. But the witness here would be that this man was cleansed. And Jesus told him to tell nobody, but still go to the priest. So what was he supposed to tell the priest? What happened, right? I mean, how did that happen? It, but Jesus says, don't do that. Just do the offering that they, that, that's commanded. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. It's necessary for us to sometimes get away to pray. And that can mean just going into your bedroom apart from your family. It doesn't mean you have to go find a desolate place. Jesus didn't have a home, <laughs> so it would have made it difficult. So he had to go into desolate places because so many people were following him. He had to go to these places to be alone with the Father. On one of these days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. That's an important statement, that Pharisees and teachers of the law were there. And then it gets more expansive than that, who had come from every village of Galilee— because that's the region he was in, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem. So the word about him was getting out so much that they were coming from Jerusalem to Galilee to see. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. I mentioned that to you yesterday, that, that Luke will tell us when Jesus heals like this, sometimes he will say the power of the Lord was present for him to heal. We know that in Nazareth he was unable to do these things because the faith of the people there was insufficient to be able to, for them to receive healings. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd— they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, as I said before, the power was there for healing, and he couldn't do anything in Nazareth because the people there didn't have faith. Here, he saw their faith and said, man, your sins are forgiven you. What? It's his legs. I mean, you know, that's kind of the, the way that you might have reacted to that, right? I mean, what do you mean your sins are forgiven? Here, I believe with all my heart that here, this 
condition, this paralysis, has something to do with sin in this man's life, and therefore the most important thing he needed first, like the other man needed touch, was the forgiveness. There's a recognition there of why this happened. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. They're completely right. (laughs) He is God. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise and walk? I mean, there's a proof. If you say, rise and walk, and a man doesn't, then you don't have any power, right? But if he does, then, then you've proven the power, and that power would then be able to also authenticate the first thing you said. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And again, Jesus did it because that was the most important thing the man needed. And I, th- I believe that the forgiveness of sins is actually what makes possible the next thing. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Immediately, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. It would have said something more about Jesus than just his ability to heal, because what he also proved is he had the authority to forgive sins. In the epistle, we finished up with John's epistle, the first epistle yesterday, so today we're going to do the second epistle, and it's continuing a lot of the same themes as the first, that, that the most important thing to believe is that Jesus came in the flesh, and that he was the Son of God, and that his name, the Lord saves, is what you need to believe in, and then you need to obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, he said, it's to love one another. So, He's writing here, and he says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now, is he when he calls it lady, is he speaking to a human person, or is he speaking to the church and calling her a lady in the same way that, that we refer to you know various things with um, masculine or feminine pronouns? <clears throat> and whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. And what he's already spoken of in First John was that, that we need to love the elect. We need to love those who are in Christ Jesus. And so here he says, who I love in truth. And the truth is that, that we are grounded in the truth of Jesus' incarnation, crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension that we're clear on all of that, and that he is the Son of God. And so that's the truth that he loves them in. We love one another in that truth. We love one another especially as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he goes on to give the sort of standard greeting that Paul uses, grace, mercy, and peace all be, will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Those two things are inextricably tied with one another. If we are in truth, then we love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children, he says, some of your children, not all of them, walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And and that's the truth that that, that will bring us to that place of love. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it, which is loving one another. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. And here's the definition that he says is a deceiver and an antichrist. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. The ones that, that, that believe, no, he only seemed to be a man. 
It was, a, it was something to trick you, because it, it's impossible for, for God's Spirit and flesh to be one. And that was their basis for believing this, is that flesh was so, is so corrupted that, that, that you couldn't have both natures, God and man, in the flesh. So he says, it, it, the deceiver is the one who doesn't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the, is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, therefore, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. In other words, call, make him an anathema. Don't have anything to do with him. If they, if they come and bring some different teaching than that, then don't welcome them. And he says, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked ways. So keep a distance from those people. Don't be polluted by contact with those who come as deceivers and antichrists. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete, both of us. The children of your elect sister greet you. It's important. It's absolutely important that we recognize Jesus and and trust in him as the incarnate Son of God, as the incarnate God. It's important that we get that right. If we will have that right, then we will follow him in all things, not what society tells us to do. No, we will stand for the rights of the unborn. We recognize there's a law that allows people to have abortions, but we will fight that because that is wrong. So we live in a different kingdom. We're not going to practice these things, and we're going to do our best to tell you not to practice them as well because we love those children and because we love you because when you kill that child, you've harmed your soul. And so we're going to be out of step with a lot of the world on a lot of different things. But we got to be like Daniel. we got to not be afraid of the consequences because we know the eternal consequences of disobedience and failing to recognize him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords.